0: So there's a lot of things I want to cover, so I'm going to jump right into it. A couple of weeks ago, I was on a trip with a group of guys that I get together with every fall, and we have for the last, I don't know, 14 years or so. Y- y- y'all have heard me uh, talk about male spirituality, and the central issue which I think is plaguing male spirituality, specifically in the States, is Isolation. I think there are a lot of women who also struggle with isolation. There's some pretty uh, damning stats for the culture in which we reside in for both men and women. So I'm not trying to say this is uniquely a male thing, but I do think uh, it is especially poignant for men. With that being said, uh, I, you know, I think it's important for guys to be together. If you want uh, to have a healthy, vibrant spiritual life or just a healthy, vibrant life. If you want to be a disciple of Jesus, you can't do any of those things alone. And so it's important to invest in important relationships and the friendships that you keep are the friendships that you keep on the calendar. And so there's this group that we keep on the calendar. We get together with every fall. I have not missed one gathering in 14 years, knock on wood there, uh, because this is important to me. And so I talked a few weeks, months ago about, uh, this group for my brother-in-law who likes to go on their, their getaways and gotten some pushback. Cause you know, okay, we go golf and blah, blah, blah. It, and it's now used as a pretext by my brother-in-law for his spiritual development for him playing golf, which y'all know, I don't care about golf. Like do your thing. If you like golf, great, go for it. But um, just being together, just being in the room is good, but doesn't mean everything is good. I mean, we've all heard of bros getting away and those trips can be less than ideal. And so uh, l- let me be specific. One of the things I think is important for male spirituality and all spirituality in general, but specifically men for this conversation, is that you have intentional conversations. It's not just we're in the room together, but we are getting in the midst of what actually is residing with our hearts and what's going on in our minds. And so you have to have some honest, hard conversations. And so part of what I do with this group is it's functioning like group therapy, We get together, spend an hour for each person, talk through situations, pray together. Deeply meaningful. It's hard for me to express how valuable that is to me. And if any of you are thinking, hey, should I try to put something together? Yes, 100%. Do whatever it takes to put together a group that has this level of intensity and commitment towards staying in relationship with each other and helping each other grow to be the people that God created you to be. Like, it's super important, super important. And so we are out there. Uh, There is a gentleman named Randy Harris who is – he was one of my professors in college and he's now – he's like the closest thing to a Church of Christ, Richard Rohr. Yeah, like they they. I once got them in, uh, for one of our gatherings. We went to Albuquerque and Roar actually spent a couple hours with this group and Randy was there and I was like, wow, like these are, like, you guys know each other. Like if if, if only Richard Roar could do acapella singing like Randy, then they could be best friends. Actually, Randy doesn't really sing. He likes chant. So basically, he could do the th- same thing as Roar. Uh, but okay, so Randy's there. He's kind of like the spiritual guru for us and. He had this great axiom that he shared that has stayed with me. I would say haunted in a good way. It's a phrase about um, Mennonite spirituality. It comes from Mennonite spirituality where they say you have two responsibilities for a day. You have to be aware of God's presence and you have to milk the cows. Two responsibilities for a Mennonite. Be aware of God's presence and milk the cows. And if you can't milk all of your cows, it means you have too many cows. Now, I don't have any cows. Don't really do the cow thing. That's not really my jam. But I found that phrase to be deeply moving. And so I decided I I think I have too many cows in my life. And so I took a week off uh, last week, didn't post a podcast because I think I needed some space. I think I had found myself with too many metaphorical cows in my life, things had gotten busy. And so I just need a break. That's why there was no podcast last week. And I'm back. We got some stuff lined up that I'm really excited about for, um, for Advent. We got a thing on gratitude today that we'll, we'll get to in a minute. And so I'm excited for you to hear. I think Esau McCauley is next week and then Brian Zond. And then we're going to do the, the Advent stuff that actually BZ will kick that off. So I'm excited for what's coming up in the future. Good stuff lined up, but just needed a break. And uh, I think there's some some wisdom for, for all of us to think about two things that you have to do. One, be aware of God's presence and two, milk the cows. Take care of your responsibilities. And if you can't get them all done in a day, maybe you got too many. And so sometimes you need to, you need to pare back What's in your, um, your herd. I'm really struggling with this bovine metaphor language, but you get my point. So, uh, that's why there was no podcast last week. Um, can I talk about Taylor Swift for a minute? Yeah, I think, I, I didn't think I was gonna do this, but I want to do this. Okay. Let me talk about Taylor Swift for a second. I think there's a life lesson from Taylor. This is the second thing. We'll get to the sermons. The third thing, uh, a couple weeks ago, Taylor came out with a new album I forget the name of the album, but I don't really do album names very well anyway. And it comes out and I knew it was coming out and I was gone uh, that weekend and I was actually going with our friend uh, Jay Miller to listen to a Jude and the Lie concert and a band called National Parks were opening for them. And so the week up, I'm listening to a lot of Jude and the Lion, and then a the couple days before I'm like, I got to figure out this opening band. Their name's the National Parks. They're amazing. And so I'm listening to them and Taylor Swift came out the day of the concert. And so I was like, I'm not going to listen to Taylor before this. And so I'm going to wait, wait a couple days, listen to it. Two days later, I get back on a Saturday. I listen to it Sunday night for a walk and I go for a walk, listen to Taylor. And I'm going to be honest, I didn't love the new album, didn't like it. And I love Taylor Swift literally as much as the next guy, actually more than most next guys. Really, I'm a fan of her, but didn't like the new album. And so I thought, wow, this is uh, not to be expected. I usually like her stuff. Didn't like it. I don't know why. Like, I've gotten older. Maybe I'm like, my musical palette is changing. I don't know what the deal is. But I went back a second time, listened to it again. I thought, uh, it's about the same. Gave it another week, and I came back and listened to it a third time. And I was like, wait a minute. I actually like this. And I found myself going, I, I, I like the music now. I'm a fan of the album. I'm on board with it. But it took me a couple listens and a couple weeks to really get into it. And I found this like life lesson of going, There are some people because of the relationship you have with them that you give them the space to get to know them. You give them like an extra measure of energy because you are curious enough to figure them out, to learn about them. And so you will tolerate them not showing up well or to have a weird first impression, which might be more about you than it is about him or them. And if you had that same level of commitment for other people, that you typically would say, ah, I don't like that person or oh, I don't think they have anything to say or oh, I don't have anything to learn from them that if you would give them that same level of respect that maybe you too would have a positive experience the second time around. One of the things that I've learned about doing a podcast is that there are some times that for whatever reason, like maybe especially earlier on the podcast, I would get nervous to talk to specific guests. I would really like, you know, Just have a level of anxiety because I want it to go well and I really want this interview to be good and I want the conversation to be meaningful and I want them to laugh at my jokes and I want them to like kind of get my vibe and get my energy. And like I try so hard, especially early podcasts, I really felt like I was like over try, like cared too much and like it would fall flat and I was like, man, I wish I just had a second opportunity. And I know that there are times that we have like an attempt to make a first impression and it doesn't go well Or we try to show up and the thing doesn't go well for us and we just wish that someone would give us a second chance I know that the same experience other people probably have with you as well So you sometimes you got to give them a chance to figure out And learn who they actually are and so that's the lesson from the taylor swift album I wasn't going to share that but you know what it snuck in we got to talk about it. So there it is um, first thing Get rid of the cows. You might have too many so that you can be aware of God. And uh, second thing, give yourself a chance to listen to someone. Take some time to get to know them. Sometimes we miss who they are because we're so in a busy, like we don't have space for them to have a bad first impression. Uh, So that was my second thing. Now, here's the third thing before we get to the uh, gratitude sermon. Uh, I'm playing this because it's about to be Thanksgiving. And if you've listened to the podcast for any period of time, you know that I think gratitude is a central tenet of a healthy life. As Scripture tells us in the book of 1 Thessalonians, it is God's will for you to give thanks in all circumstances. God's desire for you, according to Scripture, is for you to be a person of thankfulness, for you to be a person of gratitude. It's essential for us to do that. And so during this season, it's easy to just jump into Thanksgiving season and miss, wait a minute, this is a great opportunity for me to use this as a time and a season for spiritual development, for me to align myself to being a person of gratitude. Because I don't think anyone has a whole lot of joy in their life if they're not actively practicing gratitude. So that's kind of the heart behind this series. It's a series entitled Altars, and I'm kicking this off. And there's some a uh, couple things I want to talk about. First of all, so that you get some context for it. One, I actually uh, heard uh, our guy Jay Miller, who I just referenced a few minutes ago, he did a series on altars maybe like four years ago, and I thought, wow, that's a, like a great idea. And so I, I ripped off the initial idea about altars from him. And so you know, want to give. Credit where credit is due. So thanks, Jay, for the idea. Uh, Second thing, I tell some really personal stories in this. And one of the things I wish everyone could watch during this sermon was there is a person, I don't think he's a part of our church, but I remember exactly where he was sitting. And I start the sermon and he's like, the the way our auditorium is set up, like we have the the ground level and then we have a couple sections in the back that kind of have like... um, like an, an incline, like their stadium seating kind of thing where like there's a substantial like steps up for them. Uh, someone call it like a, it's not a balcony, but it's uh, it looks like a movie theater. And so some people at our church call it Tinseltown because when the auditorium was built, there's movie theater, same name. Anyway, weird name if you're not from Austin, but whatever. And so he's kind of in the back. He's at like the the first or second seat And it's starting to be like rise there in the very back. So this is a great spot to be incognito because most people in churches don't realize that people can actually see you. Like they don't think the preacher can actually see you because I don't know why. But so anyway, like he's back there and I start preaching and he just opens up his Bible and he starts reading it. And it has nothing to do with the text that I'm reading because the text I'm reading is out of the book of Genesis. I can tell like he's in the middle of his Bible, which Genesis, in case you didn't know, is at the beginning of the Bible. Anyway, so he's clearly just reading his own thing, has nothing to, uh, to give in terms of attention for what's happening in the service and the sermon. And like, I, I'm just watching, like, okay, yeah, he's out. This is kind of funny to me. And so I'm preaching, I'm watching this guy just because I find it curious at this point because I knew I'm going to tell some very personal stories Maybe halfway through the sermon and I knew exactly what was going to happen and it's the exact same thing that happened And so i'm talking about the bible I'm talking about the bible and then I say hey, this is my personal story And it's just like as soon as I said that like his attention is just like laser focused and for the rest of the like personal stuff he's just completely dialed in Which if there's anything i've learned in 20 years of preaching is that we really gravitate towards that personal stuff like we, we want that and at least for me is like I know that intellectually, but what I also know is like you don't want to be the person who steps too far into that lane to make every week or consistently every sermon has something about you, and so you you want it to be personal, but you don't want it to be your personal therapy session and and like I would much rather never get into the personal therapy session and so maybe be a little too um like dry instead of being like too much right like you don't want to be the person who stays too long at a party you'd rather leave a few minutes early same idea with personal anecdotes for me and like autobiographical uh content in sermons but this one has a lot of that and so there's a couple things that uh, you can't see one of the things i'm going to be holding up is like this this purple really frilly girly uh stereotypically girly excuse me um Matilda Jane Blanket, obviously I'm a father of girls. And so that's kind of like the normative stuff in my house. But uh, at one point I talk about my daughter, Audrey and her sickness, and you can't see the picture. You can't see um, the blanket, but I'm going to show a picture of her when she was at Dell Children's. And this is the purple blanket that she had on her while she was in the bed. And so that'll make more sense once you see it. Okay. I think that's probably enough background for the sermon. I think you get it. Uh, But the hope is that um, maybe this can help you as you create a gratitude practice, Uh, One of the things that uh, James Martin told us maybe a year year or two ago on the podcast is that it is easier to see God's presence in the past than it is in the present, but we develop the muscle memory to see God in the presence by being aware of God in the past. So uh, hopefully this uh, this sermon gives you some ideas on that and uh, get ready for Advent. We'll start that in, uh, I guess it's two weeks from now, but um, without further ado, here it is. Now we're starting something new today, and as we start something new, I want to show you A clip. Now, let me explain this clip to you. Now, some of you might not be TikTok people. I'm just going to guess. Some of you aren't. I'm not. But one of the things that is on TikTok, and I think you can do this on Instagram as well, but you can post a video of you watching another video. And there's no way to say that without sounding rampantly narcissistic. But such is the time and place that we are in. So I'm going to show you a video of a gentleman from across the pond watching a video of something else and I want you just to pay close attention to the way that he so accurately describes not just how he's feeling but probably how you're feeling too while you watch this video. So take a look.
1: I'm going to let you know how this makes me feel throughout. Right now I'm feeling, oh, I'm feeling happy. I enjoyed that very much so. What a delightful display of colours. Right now, I'm acknowledging that they're doing it in two rows. That's a bit interesting. But it's kind of taken a while. I feel quite displeased, if I'm being completely honest. Oh, we've got a big swirler coming up. This could make me very excited. Is it really just going to go around one at a time? I'm now feeling angry. I feel impatient. Is this really going to be a single trail swirler? I thought we were dealing with a big wham-bam swirler. I am angry, confused, and disappointed, to say the least. Please, hurry up! I've seen this swirl. I want to see something else. If something interesting doesn't happen, in the next two seconds, watch this, I swear to go, ooh, (laughs) I like that. That were a good one, wasn't it? Isn't he right?
0: Isn't that how you felt? Isn't that amazing? If something doesn't happen right now, I'm going to be angry. I'm going to leave. Oh, wait, I'm happy. Doesn't that just describe not only how we see a video like that, but sometimes how we experience life? If something meaningful doesn't happen right now, then I'm going to, in scripture, in the book of James, we have this metaphor of a wave of the sea that's tossed to and fro by the wind. The wave has no anchoring. The wave has no stability. It's just tossed backwards and forwards by everything around it, just like the guy's emotions In that video. And unfortunately, far too many of us experience life like a wave that's simply tossed to and fro by the winds around us of circumstances. And part of the reason we do that is we invest so much time in a little device that we keep in our pocket that is created to build in you instability. Your phone is built so that you will constantly be asking for something more. What do you do when you're trying to check if you have new emails? Slide down. If you're trying to see if there's an update on your social media, whether it's Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, you're pulling down. And you know where they got that mechanism for when they designed your phone and those apps? It's a slot machine. They literally built your phone around the instability of a gambling device known as a slot machine. And if you're lucky, a red light pops up on your phone just like on a slot machine. And so is it any wonder that we're like this wave that's being tossed to and fro by everything around us. And we're always asking the question, give me something more meaningful in front of me. And there has to be a better way. There has to be a different way to live. In the Gospels, at the very beginning of Jesus' life, Mary, the mother of Jesus, has this very unique sentence written about her and how she experiences this. Let's read this from Scripture in Luke 2. But Mary treasured all these words and pondered them in her heart. She sees what's in front of her and she treasures them. Another translation says she savored them. She sees what's in front of her and she doesn't say, I need more. I need more meaningful moments. But she sees all the meaning in the moments right in front of her. And she holds on to it. She holds on to it. Unfortunately, we live far more like the guy with the great accent watching the video. We're just tossed to and fro looking for something else. And can you blame us? Everything in front of us is set up to be that way. Our phones are always there saying, give me something more. Give me more attention, more of your eyes, more of your focus. In some ways, we're almost hardwired to be the opposite of this. When I was a kid, we spent a lot of time in Washington, D.C. because that's where my mom was from. And so I was born in Philadelphia, but we would often come, often come down to Washington, D.C. And we'd see museum after museum, the Smithsonian, the Lincoln Memorial, all this great stuff. But as a 10 year old boy, you know what I was more excited to look at? My Game Boy. Do you know what a Game Boy is? It is a screen that's smaller, about the same size as an uh, iPhone watch. What are those called again? Apple Watches, that's it. The same size as an Apple Watch, except it's only one color, it's just green. And yet, as a 10-year-old boy, I would stare at that all day long. And if you would have given me a tablet or an iPhone when I was 10, I promise you, I would not even know the color of the sky. I would be so fascinated by it. And so is it any wonder that this experience of being able to treasure what's right in front of you is so difficult, even though it is foundational for the spiritual life? Thomas Merton says it this way about the spiritual life. He says, one of the most important and most neglected elements in the beginnings of the interior life is the ability to respond to reality, to see the value and the beauty in ordinary things, to come alive to the splendor that is all around us. And one of the reasons that this is so neglected is that we are far more like a wave at sea, just tossed to and fro by the wind around us. And the solution is not to grab your phone, it's not to get something new, it's not to have more meaningful moments in front of us, but the way to see all of the meaning in the moments right in front of us is not to find something new, but to find maybe a practice that's extremely old, to find something to anchor, to find something that tethers us to something beyond just what's right now. And I think what we need isn't something new, but something old, like an altar, There's a practice throughout the Old Testament when something meaningful happened to create and to build an altar. Genesis 8, after the flood happens, God promises to never do that to humanity again. And the response of Noah is to build an altar. Genesis 12, after Abram is given this message that you are going to be a blessing to the entire world, his response in Genesis 12 is to build an altar. To build something to remind them of what has happened. One of my favorite songs is the old hymn, Come Thou Found," And there's this line in there where it says, Here I raise my Ebenezer. And Ebenezer was a stone of remembrance. And so obviously if you've read the Old Testament, you might think of of altars as a place to make a sin offering, which, which did happen, but that's not the totality of what altars were. Many times these altars were things that reminded you of what you encountered from God, of what God has done in your life. And so what I want us to do for the next month is to talk about altars, so that maybe you can build one in your life, to acknowledge the times and the place that you found God in your life. Because one of the core tenets of Christianity is remembrance, remembrance. The reason we are called to practice Sabbath is to remember what God did on the seventh day of creation. The reason the Jews practice Sabbath was to remember what God did in Egypt. And the reason that we take this bread and we take this cup is to do this in remembrance of what God has done in Jesus. I think one of the core things that you and I need to learn how to do is to remember. And one of the ways that we remember better is by building altars. And so over the next few weeks, our country, America, is going to transition to a time in which we practice thanksgiving. And as Americans, we are thankful for the country we have during this time. But as those of us who have a deeper allegiance to the kingdom of God, this is a chance for us to remember and to be grateful for the moments that we were most aware of God's presence in our life by building altars. So the hope of this series is for you to find ways to see how God has been involved in your life. For you to see the ways in which God has been present. Because one of the best ways to be able to see how God is present in your life in the present is by remembering what God has done in the past. And that's why you need an altar. All right, let me tell you a story. A couple weeks ago, I'm at home and I tell my wife, I think what we need to have in our house that we don't currently have is an air fryer. We need an air fryer. And I tell my wife, for the past few months, I have been slowly aggregating a list of air fryer recipes that I think that not only would I enjoy, but the entire family would enjoy. And I can do this if I just had an air fryer, because that's what our house needs. And so, a little while later, my wife sends me a text. And in this text message is a link to an air fryer from Walmart. She sends it to me, and I look at it. Now, again, I've been researching air fryers for months, so I know more things than my wife does about this. I'm not trying to brag, but I do. And so I text my wife back and I say, honey, I appreciate the sentiment. That's a nice idea, but that's a little more expensive than what I wanted to spend. I'm not some rich accountant. I'm a lowly preacher, okay? I can't afford the Walmart version. Amazon has one for $30 cheaper. But yes, that's an air fryer. I like the idea. Thanks for listening. And then she texts me back and goes, Luke, we have that in our kitchen already, For the past two years, the thing that I thought was a fancy toaster oven turns out to be an air fryer. And and no one told me that. No one told me. Okay. It was always right there the entire time. And I just thought it was a toaster. So that's how good of a cook I am. One of the reoccurring problems that scripture tells about humanity is a spiritual unawareness to what's right in front of them. A spiritual inability to be aware of what's right in their midst. There's a story about one gentleman who had that problem. His name was Jacob. Jacob had a long history of doing wrong things to the people closest to him. He ripped off his brother twice. Stole his blessing. Stole his birthright. Lied to his father in the process. Pretended to be his older brother to steal his father's deathbed blessing. And so he runs away in this sort of de facto facto exile because he thinks his brother, his big brother that he stole from is going to give him what he deserves. And so in the midst of this de facto exile in which he's far from his people and far from his land, this story takes place in Genesis chapter 28 starting in verse 11. If you're physically able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Scripture says, He came to a certain place and stayed there for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place. And he dreamed that there was a ladder set up on the earth, the top of it reaching to heaven. And the angels of God were ascending and descending on him. And the Lord stood beside him and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land of which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. And your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to west and to the east and to the north and to the south, and all the families of the earth shall be blessed in you and in your offspring. Know that I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you. Until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob woke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So Jacob rose early in the morning and he took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar. And poured oil on the top of it, he called that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz, as at the first. the word of the Lord. Praise be to God Please be seated. Jacob is running away from the consequences of his selfish, sinful decisions. He goes to sleep one night and he has this dream. Scripture says there is a ladder that ascended from heaven. Now, we know the great theologian Led Zeppelin said it was a stairway, so that's probably more accurate. But there's angels going up and down. Heaven and earth are connected. The place where he is and the place where God is are not distant, but they are connected. And so he wakes up and he is afraid. This is an awe-inspiring moment. And he makes this declaration that God is here. Because what he heard was not something new. He didn't get something new added to him, but the same promise that his father knew and his grandfather knew. That God was going to bless the entire world through his family, who became the Jewish people, was spoken to him. It was not a new word, but it was the same word that he needed to be reminded of. Because up until then, he believed that he was separate. And he was separate from his brother. He was separate from his father. He was separated from his family. He was separated from his land and his people. But one of the things he forgot is that even if he is distant from his family and distant from his country and distant from his people, that does not mean he is distant from God. And so he makes this declaration in verse 16. He says this. Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. Because there are times and seasons in our life where we think because of the consequences of the sinful decisions that we made, because of the wrong things that we've done, that we are far from the life that we want to have. That the blessed life is over there, the the good life is over there, the one that I want to be living is over there, and I'm here, and we think because of the distance between where I want to be and where I am, that somehow that means I'm also distant from God, but as Jacob found out in that moment, surely the Lord is in this place, and I didn't know it, is something that you and I can also say. Because one of the great struggles of figuring out exactly where God is is there, we're almost always looking all around, that God is over there, God is up there, God is behind me. And what we miss is that God is actually right in our midst. And we miss it. Barbara Brown Taylor says it this way. She says, no one longs for what he or she already has. And yet the accumulated insight of those wise about the spiritual life suggests that the reason so many of us cannot see the red X that marks the spot is because we are standing on it. It's not there. It's not there. It's not. It's right here. And in a world in which we are conditioned to always be asking, forgive me a more meaningful moment, we miss the moment and the meaning that already is in front of us because God isn't when everything gets put back together. God isn't when your budget finally looks right. God isn't when your kids finally come home. The good life isn't when everything is organized, but it is right here in this place because surely the Lord is right here with you. And the promise That had been given to him generations before was just as true to him today. Just as the promise that you and I were given generations before when Jesus said, And surely I am with you always to the end of age is just as true for you today. But we miss it. And so we need an altar. We need things that tether us to what is true and what is real. And what is truly right in front of us. If you've been a part of Westover for some years, you might have had the fortune of sitting in one of Rob Cron's Bible classes. Rob and Amy were longtime members of this church for decades. Rob's now working on his PhD up in the Metroplex. And so I reached out to him and said, Rob, I know that you often lead trips to the the Middle East, to the Holy Lands, and I'm doing this series on altars. Could you send me a picture of an actual altar? And so he sent me this picture right here. Uh, This is an altar that's roughly... Uh, a thousand years before the time of jesus about three thousand years old and this is about six miles west of the dead sea And so rob was on one of his trips He took one of these pictures and side note if you ever want to go on a trip to the holy lands rob is a great person to talk to He's doing one again next july And one of the things that you'll see in a trip like that is a structure like this an ancient altar And what's most unique about this picture, maybe what's most important for us to see, is the structure that is this altar came from the very substances, the the items that were around it. In the same way that Jacob built this this pillar after his dream, from the stone that he slept on as a pillow, he took what was around him and built something. Altars are often constructed from the very things around us when you experience the blessing. And so your altar's not gonna look just like this, but in the same way that this looks like everything around it, your altar too might look similar to what's around you in life. I'll tell you a couple stories to maybe give you some ideas of what altars could look like for you. First one's not my story. But the power of these stories is more personal than it is collective sometimes. Because altars are most often remembered not just intellectually in your mind, but experientially in your heart. So sometimes they don't always connect to other people like they connect to you. But 20-some years ago, I was a graduate student in Abilene, Texas. And the church I would go to when I wasn't preaching was a church called the Highland Church of Christ. And the preacher there was a guy named Mike Cope. Dear friend, and one Sunday, Mike had, um, had a jogging stroller he brought on stage. Mike's a, a runner, continues to be, always has been. And he had this jogging stroller to take his youngest daughter with him on some of his runs. Uh, Mike's youngest, uh, his, excuse me, his middle daughter, his middle child, his daughter, Megan, was born with special needs. And at that point, Megan had passed away years before. Megan didn't make it to be a teenager. And one of the things that was most meaningful to Mike were the chances that he would get up early in the morning to take his daughter for a jog in this jogging stroller. So years later, Mike brings this jogging stroller on the stage and he tells the story about how meaningful it was to him. And the line I remember the most from that sermon was Mike saying, I didn't realize how hard this was going to be as tears poured down his face. I didn't realize how hard this was going to be to tell the story. But no matter how difficult it was to tell the story, there was a clear acknowledgement that God was in this place with him. The story didn't have the end that he wanted, but God was right there with him. And so this jogging stroller that he kept with him always carried this reminder that God was in this place for him. Next story. In 2018, I ironically was coming back from preaching at the Highland Church of Christ. I'd taken my two oldest daughters with me because my youngest daughter wasn't feeling good, and so she stayed back here in Austin with Lindsay and Avery and Adeline, And I stopped to eat at the subway in Lampasas, Texas, just up the road from here. And we're eating, about to go back to the truck. And as we're walking the truck, I get a call from Lindsay. And she says, I I think Audrey's not feeling good because it's something substantial. It's it's something bigger. And so I'm heading to Dell Children's. And so we get in the car and we rush down there. And soon after I get to the hospital with Lindsay and, and Audrey, the doctor says, "Yeah, we think this might be uh, leukemia." And so they transfer us to the oncology floor at Dell Children's. And we spend the next two or three days in this great turmoil that, unfortunately, some of you know all too well. And we're there for two or three days. Here's a here's a picture. And after the um, third day, we got the best news that we'd ever received that she didn't have cancer. But um, that blanket is one that was with us the entire time. We still have it. And I can't look at this blanket without thinking of this moment Right here. And this blanket doesn't tell me that. Every situation turns out how we wanted it to. Which is exactly what happened for us. And it doesn't tell me that we always get good news. But it does tell me that we're not alone. And that even in moments like this. Surely the Lord is in this place. So this blanket reminds me of something. Let me tell you another story. Uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, I got a call from my uncle, and he said, uh, I-, I think your mom just passed away. And so again, I get in a truck and I drive to Abilene, which, as you see, is a very traumatic place for me. Uh, everything's Abilene. we get there, I get there a few hours later, and what he said was true. And we had to figure out how to do a funeral during a pandemic, and obviously everything was uh, unavailable. No funeral home was open for us to use for a funeral service. Uh, No church would let uh, people in there to have a service, and so I I was kind of stuck and my brain wasn't even really working fully as those of you who've experienced grief know. It's just like the brain is just maybe on 40%. It's like on low battery mode or something. And I'm talking to my friend Jonathan who was the preacher at Highland and he says, hey, call, call Brad and Deborah McCoy. Uh, they've got a, a, a great backyard and, and I said, that's yeah, perfect because my parents actually used to live in their old house was near where McCoy's old house was out in Tuscola. And so I called Brad up and Jonathan had kind of told him what I was going to call him about. And I call him up, and I say, hey, Brad. And then I, <laughs> I lost the ability to talk. And he kind of just jumps in the conversation. because goes, Luke, it's okay. Just come to my house. We'll take care of everything. Um, you, you can use our backyard. And uh, so that evening, I drive over there. And Brad and Deborah, who many of you remember from, uh, they often would attend Westovers, their sons were in school at Texas. And they had been cleaning their backyard, been mowing and doing everything for what appeared to be the entire day since I called. And I'll never forget it. I'll never forget the way that they helped out. They took a random phone call and, and served us with their hospitality. And so fast forward a few months later, maybe a year later, Brad and Deborah show up at Westover for a service, and and I didn't notice they were in the room, and after the service I'm in the back right there, and I see Brad and his tall self walking towards me, and I have this emotional moment because in some ways I realized that they became this altar for me because altars often come from the location where the blessing was experienced, And the blessing wasn't that my mom, who had been sick my entire life, got better. The blessing wasn't that there was some magic outcome, but the blessing was we weren't alone. Because often the way that we experience the presence of God is in the body of Christ. So people can be an altar. It can be a jogging stroller. It can be a blanket. It can be friends who happen to be there at the right moment at the right time. And you don't forget it. You know, forget it. But often, when you don't forget it, is the very moment when you need it the most. So, the Jacob story with the surely the Lord is in this place is in chapter 28. But if you fast forward seven chapters, he ends up back in the same location. And in chapter 35, this happens Jacob came to Ludz, that is Bethel. Which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him, and there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel because it was there that God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And so it takes seven chapters later, some substantial period of time, and he happens to go back there, and that's when he builds the altar. Again, like the altar wasn't built necessarily right in the moment. He built this pillar, but the altar doesn't appear until seven chapters later. It's like he needs to see what's going on in the present, and then he has to run back to the past to remember this is the God that's still with you. Because there is a repeated problem with humanity that we, we forget what God has done in the past. And we need all these things to say this is where you need to continue to go because God continues to be the same God who was there for you in the past. We always forget. At the end of Moses' life, the end of Deuteronomy, he looks at the people and says, remember what God did. The Psalms over and over again, remember who God was. Remember how God delivered you. Remember what God did in the Exodus. And then you get to the New Testament, and we have the greatest altar, the greatest sacrament the world has ever seen in Communion, where Jesus do this in remembrance of me. We need things to continue to point us forward. Uh, let, let me show you this image. This is a Karen. Uh, this is one actually in Switzerland. And these, from what I've been told, seem to be somewhat a, a regular occurrence for people to stumble into these when they're on a hike. And they're traversing like this m- massive, difficult course. And sometimes they have more, more sacred functions. Maybe they remind someone of someone who was lost. And that's part of it. But another part of what these things do is they point you to where you need to keep going. And so it's a reminder of the past, but in some ways it's also a directive to point you to where you need to go in the future. And so, maybe what you need to do is to find an altar in your life to remind you of what God did in the past so that you can be continued to be pointed in the right direction in the future. Because truly, what we need is not more moments that seem more meaningful, but what we need to learn how to do is to find more meaning in the moments that are right in front of us. To have something to remind you that God is right here with you, no matter if you feel separated. From the people you want to be with, from the place where you want to be, from the life that you want to have. Because even if you are separate and distant from those, that doesn't mean that God is distant from you. Because no matter where you are, surely the Lord is in this place too. Amen.